0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Borellis. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone.
1: This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
2: It's the sweet one. Welcome to another episode of the Theater Podcast Intimate Personal Conversations with Theater's Biggest Names. I'm Alan
0: Seals. What is Little Sweet? Like, what is he supposed to be? I'm sorry i like, I'm Jillian, you know this. I'm not okay. What is this? <laughs> Lil' sweet.
2: Okay, so this episode is with Justin Guarini, who, who is from the original season of American Idol, 2002, who was also, in case, for those who didn't know, Lil Sweet from the Diet Dr. Pepper commercials.
0: He's done so many things, but that seems to be your favorite and you keep singing it and I don't understand.
2: It's such a catchy little tune, you know.
0: It's a sweet one. Good job, Dr. Pepper. You've done your Um, job.
2: Yeah, cool. It's stuck in my head. Thanks. So this dude, I am pumped, man. The interview, the conversation was phenomenal. I didn't know what to expect meeting him because he's not that active in Broadway, but he's done a, he's done a few shows. Yeah,
0: he's done a bunch of stuff. He just hasn't done anything like super recently, but he is definitely a Broadway guy.
2: Yeah, he's a Broadway guy, performance guy, obviously a wonderful singer and he he has learned, you hear the story in the interview, just learned from what, you know, he calls it uh, failures, right? He comes he wins this huge success and fame in Idol and then less than a year later is sitting in this mansion with tons of money, literally, you know, millions of dollars, and is so unhappy.
0: And everything goes wrong. And, and everything he's goes wrong. Twenty-two years old, and you were given the world, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're like, "Never mind."
2: Yeah, and he he now you know he talks about this. He found himself. He, he figured out who he is. He's he just turned forty recently. Looks amazing, oh by my, the way. It
0: does not look forty. Please Google him. Please Google <laughs> Justin. Justin, you're amazing. Please. Let me know what your skincare routine is.
2: <laughs> Him and Chris Sieber, those are the two you've said that for. Um, but yeah, he has found himself as as like an entrepreneur and a teacher. And he says that he loves, he loves to teach. And he loves to give back. And he's a humanitarian who fights for the arts and, you know, to not cut funding in schools and like is a successful actor and voiceover artist and performer of all sorts of different ways. But is just like... I think he had this huge, huge high and then this huge low. And now, you know, however many years later, he's just, he's just himself and so comfortable in his own skin.
0: He found what makes him happy because what everyone told him was going to make him happy didn't. And so he's like, let's, let's stop and reevaluate and find what works for me. And I really respect that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. So as always, before we get into this here, I just got to plug our socials in our website. You can find us theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can visit ttp.fm to find us online, ttp.fm slash Patreon to show your support.
0: If you want to know who's going to be on our podcast before everybody else and you want a chance to ask a question, become a $5 patron and we'll tell you.
2: Hex, yeah. Okay. So everybody, please enjoy this episode with Justin Guarini. three You probably know my guest today from the very first season of American Idol back in 2002, or you may know him from his appearances on the Broadway stage, including Wicked, American Idiot, Romeo and Juliet, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and most recently in Transit. He's also Lil Sweet in the Diet Dr. Pepper commercials, and now the host of his newly launched Audition Secrets podcast, Justin Belguarini. Welcome to the theater podcast. Hey,
1: thank you very much.
2: It's very nice to be here. So... I want to start real quick. Where? Why add Bell? Because you're just Justin Guarini. You know what? It it's really days.
1: interesting. Yeah, I'm actually getting rid of that. Are you, oh yeah, added it, and then uh, I realized that it, well, the reason why I added it is because it's actually my name. I originally uh, on the idol paperwork had put that in there, but I think it got lost in translation, and so uh, it's my it's my. My maiden name, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, really, more than anything else. It's uh, I took on Guarini because that's my stepfather's name out of respect for what uh, he's done for me and for my family and continues to do. And um, mean no disrespect to my father, who's awesome and amazing dad, you know what I mean? It's not like one of those sob stories. Um, but... It just somehow got lost in translation and like, you know, once you get known for something, your name or whatever it is, yeah. so you got to keep it. And so I was like, well, let me, as I start this new chapter in my life with Audition Secrets, let me see if I can throw the bell back in there. And it just seemed like one of those things where it was like, hi, I'm Justin Guarini, And people are like, wait a minute, bell. And they've missed all the information that's come after that, right? Right. So
2: anyway, that uh, that won't be there for long. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, Justin Baridi, welcome to the theater podcast. Thank you very much. It's <laughs> lovely to be here. <laughs> I have to say, seeing you in person, you have some great skin. Hey, thank you very <laughs> much. Yeah, hey, black don't
1: crack. But, um, you know, I, uh, I take very good care of it. I try as best I can. Well, and anyway, I yeah. pass it on to my, my children. Yes. You know what I mean? I'm sl- constantly slathering them up. My wife and I both are slathering them up every single day with uh, sunscreen.
2: I you are a better parent, better parent than I am. I'm just like get out of the house. You're annoying <laughs> right, me. You're no. just annoying me. I don't care. Oh, there's that too. Don't yeah. worry. Don't, well, okay. So let's talk. Speaking of kids, let's talk about you as as a child. Mm-hmm. Where where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Columbus, Georgia,
1: and my mother was a news anchor on uh, one of the local, I think maybe ABC affiliates. Funny enough, and my father was a police officer. And so fast forward a couple of years later, this news company started by Ted Turner that no one had ever heard of called Central News Network um started and my mom was tapped to be one of the anchors on CNN when it first started up so I've
2: got James Earl Jones going to Yeah my head exactly
1: already. right yeah. yeah and so that was kind of my childhood growing up in front of the cameras and I would go play on the balsa wood set of the news sets. If you've ever been on a new set, you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. They're the most flimsiest, crapsiest things, but um, they look great on camera. And so I would do that and I would wake up at like 5 o'clock in the morning and she'd be putting on like the extra thick makeup that you could wear back in those days. And then my dad became chief of police in Atlanta And so I was constantly surrounded by dignitaries, famous people, um, lights, cameras. Um, When I was five, I'll never forget, somebody let me run the teleprompter at CNN, which at the time was like, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you have a grocery belt, you put your stuff down on. Well, it was like that. Now we use computers, but then it was literally you had to put out printed pages Onto said grocery belt had a little knob that made the grocery belt go slower or faster, and then over top of the grocery belt, pointing down, was another camera that would then beam the picture to the anchor. And some idiot let a five-year-old run that during a
2: live CNN broadcast.
1: <laughs> it was crazy, but and just that's that's kind of how
2: I grew up. Wow, but okay, so that was five, right. and you were controlling everyone's perception of the news. Hello. And, but at four, you joined the Atlanta Boys Choir. I did. Yeah. They let me audition um a year earlier because,
1: um I guess i could I could carry a tune in the bucket, as they say. And, yeah, they accepted me uh, a year earlier. and it's it was a really amazing and also terrifying experience because here I was this four year old going into this situation where, like, literally, my conductor's name was, Wolfgang, you know, and like, he was very, very stern man. And, and all the things that you think of, like those, those choir directors being like the stereotypical, like choir director of a really prestigious choir and organization. Like he was that, but he was also brilliant. And here I am, this little shrimp walking in as a soprano. And I'll never forget the the first time I was late (laughs) to a rehearsal (laughs) because here I am walking in, like literally toddling into the door. And terrified. Even even then, I knew
2: that that was not a cool thing to do. Yes, he's walking, in and you're like, yeah, like, well, you're, like you're scared of Wolfgang. I'm
0: a boy soprano. Back
2: yeah. <laughs> was it uh, was it all little kids or were there big kids? Yeah, it, like, was how, a big, was it, yeah it was. Yeah, yeah,
1: because it was the the boys' choir. So um, I was in it with, you know, I don't I don't know if they were like men I again. Mean, I was four. There's only so many memories I have, but. Um, I just that that moment, whatever happened, I remember being terrified that was most of my <laughs> most of my boy choir experience was just being terrified, praying I sang the right notes but uh, okay so how how old are
2: your kids now uh six eight, and my stepdaughter's fourteen wow yeah. okay, so six and eight I have a uh an almost three year old and a a uh, four and a half year old and now like Things are happening that they will remember now. Yeah, like walking into the boys' choir late.
1: Yes, yes. Good and, and bad memories. Do you
2: do you think do you think about that when like as a dad you're like oh man I'm gonna take them to you know see behind the scenes yeah. or, or like meet Patty LaPone or whoever it is. Like Always. Are you thinking about that? You know, one of the greatest
1: things that my father ever did for me was he exposed me to the world. He exposed me to the entertainment industry. Of course, he kept me very safe while all that was happening. Um, and so I got to see things from, I don't know, I want to say, like, be in it but not of it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm always thinking that. I'm trying to bring my kids to my shows uh, that I'm in, like, uh, during In Transit, for example. You know, they have, you know, Broadway Babysitters. It's this great service, right, that um
2: will babysit your kids during that the show. That is a show. brilliant business model right it, there. Oh, it is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's so, so great. And what a niche. And so I... You know, I clacked on my phone. It was like, "Bubba, babysitters, can you please send a babysitter? (laughs) And like they have the most wonderful, and their actors are the actual babysitters themselves, right? And so um, my kids got to go hang out in the lobby, play fun games, be there, sneak in to see me singing some of my songs. And then, and I love bringing them backstage. I love exposing them to as much of my world as I can. I remember I recorded the uh soundtrack for Paint Your Wagon, which I did at Encores, and there's this beautiful like 30, 40-piece orchestra, and you know Rob Berman is up there and doing his thing, and it sounds so gorgeous, and I felt so lucky that I could bring my oldest son to see that and to hear that, because it's just like, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, the expense of just getting any musicians into the studio, mm-hmm. I mean, myself included, but really like, Orchestral musicians in this it's just so so expensive, and nobody does it anymore um and to be able to show him that and and just have him be a part of that um, just made me feel so good
2: that's so cool, okay, okay, so back back to you for a little bit enough oh, um, about me so when did you when did you actually start performing on stage or did you did you how did you fall into this because you were in boys' choir and <laughs> yeah. then
1: fall into it is a really interesting way. I remember. Singing and performing, um, I mean, the first time I ever really like really remember that was being in the car with my dad and singing Ashford and Simpsons Solid as a Rock, which most of the people listening to this podcast might not even be old enough to remember. <laughs> um, and so sang that and then got to the boys' choir. So the boys' choir definitely was my first stage experience. But I had a very interesting uh, sort of... Um, Entree into theater. I was in... Elementary school and junior high, and we would always sing on the stage. And In elementary school, I remember there was this you know, those divider walls that kind of fold into the, into the wall. Well, we had one of those in the lunchroom. And literally, there was the lunchroom on one side and the choir room on the other side. And we would sometimes have these performances where they'd fold that wall back, and we'd be singing for the lunchroom. <laughs> which is like, you know, really, truly prepared me for my first theater gig, which was a dinner theater by the oh, way. Yes. And so I really think my first sort of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is so awesome. And like, how did I never was when I was 15 and I worked at the Capers Dinner Theater in Pipersville, <laughs> Pennsylvania. And I live uh, probably about 20 minutes away from that right now, my wife and I and three kids. And we we were there because it's just like oh my it's like Brooklyn Heights in the Woods the town that I live in and then so i was 15 and i get this gig at the dinner theater and it opened my eyes to so many things. Like, I had fallen in love with Phantom, right? That's that's my first memory of musical theater. And and the memory that goes along with that was running and hiding underneath my sheets as a little, little boy because I was so terrified because I think Sarah Brightman, at, at many points, you know, Christine screams throughout that, mm-hmm. you know, right, soundtrack. And other people are screaming throughout the soundtrack and then that big, huge organ and just terrifying for a small kid. And then... Fast forward to 15, I find myself in high heels, a sequin dress with fake boobs, and a big like sort of fruit hat, like one of those big sort of Carmen Miranda deals, singing "I Am What I Am" from Lacage, <laughs> and like loving getting to screw around with like the the old farts who are coming to the dinner theater, and mm. like we just, and it just opened my eyes to so much theater and musical theater that I had not experienced uh, up to that point. And I fell in love with it after that.
2: And you were playing instruments already by this point? Because I, I read that you play piano, guitar, and banjo. Oh! <laughs>
1: Oh, is, where did you look,
2: where did you see banjo? I
1: can play one of the, one of the fake banjos, like the guitar banjos, it, it, like six stringers.
2: Wikipedia, maybe? Wikipedia, I don't know.
1: Yeah, Wikipedia lied to you, man. I don't play I, banjo to save my life. I probably could do, ding, 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 right. ding, 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 and then that would be it. That The gun would go off. Um no, I play guitar and piano, but I would say I was I was you know struggling through piano at that point. And and I say I say guitar and piano especially lightly. All of my theory, my theoretical knowledge is based on piano, but you know, guitar I I stay in what's called cowboy corner, which is right down by the neck and the the you know, a lot of the 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 basic chords uh down there. But I do love it, and I do think that if if your listeners are like thinking, hmm, should I, should I play an instrument? Hopefully they don't talk like that. But um, like Kermit. You yeah. should, yeah. <laughs> Kermit, <laughs> That's a whole other, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But um, <laughs> yeah, you should definitely learn to play an instrument because one of the best things that I've ever done, and, and I had to learn it in the boys' choir, I had to learn it all throughout my life, was to learn how to read music, to learn how to sight sing, Music And to know musical theory, it is is vital, especially in how fast the theatrical world moves. You have three weeks on Broadway to learn a show before they put you in front of an audience. And God help you if you don't have some musical uh, theoretical knowledge because it would be a hard road, much harder road to hoe. Huh? Road Right.
2: To Road to Hope, and yeah, then so in in college. Then where did you go to school? I went to University of the Arts in Philadelphia,
1: and then I went to the School for Film and Television here in New York. Right.
2: And um, what
1: used to be called the School for Film and Television.
2: And you were in an acapella group. Was that in yeah, Was that in New York? That was or? in high school. Oh, I was in high school,
1: actually. Yeah. Yeah. The Midnight Voices. You Wikipedia, and you're Wikipedia. You're like, you're, you're oh, I was in it. The, I'm in it. Deep into Wikipedia. Yeah. So that was called the Midnight Voices, and that was my real first entree into the acapella world. And that came back to serve me so much doing a show like In Transit, which was Broadway's first truly acapella musical. And so, yeah, what that was born from is like, you know, the men's ensemble in high school. And uh, then a couple of people, I was uh, like a, I don't know, a sophomore or something like that. And a couple of the seniors had this tradition where the night before graduation, a bunch of the guys from the men's ensemble would go out and at midnight serenade girls that they knew, girls that they liked, their girlfriends, you know, typical throw the rocks at the window, sing really gorgeous songs to cute girls. And so that was what uh, I ended up being, falling into that, being like, yeah, sure, I'll help you guys do that. And it ended up uh, that my best friend uh, said, hey, why don't we just make something out of this? Why don't we make a record? And, and, and it just ended up that we knew the right people, and I think we were, we recorded it to DAT, Digital yes. Audio yes. Tape. Look that up, kids. Look up DAT. Um, and we ended up recording it to DAT, and it was just one of these really crazy experiences where we took all this beautiful music that we'd learned in high school in our choir program and um, put it down on record, and then we toured around a little bit. We ended up going to competitions and... It was just so, so much fun. I got to choreograph a number for us. Um, so many really cool experiences came out of that. That's all, still, all still in high school? All still in high school, yeah. Wow. I mean, that was hard. When I mean, Like now, it's like we're sitting here with, with your laptop, and on most laptops, I mean, especially Mac laptops, you can make a record very easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you don't even have to burn it to disk anymore, right? You can just, they don't even have disk drives. Yeah, I know. Mine doesn't have yeah. one either. It's like yeah. crazy. So that was a that was a fun challenge. We recorded that with microphones in a church basement. I mean, it's like oh my god, are we in Footloose? Like, I mean, you know what I mean, like I felt like it was a, it was a really awesome experience.
2: Oh, that's great. Okay, so then fast forward, you're in New York for college, right. and then um, you graduate, and then you're like heading for for Broadway. Is that your trajectory? Graduate. Oh, you didn't no, graduate? No,
1: no, no. I was a terrible student. Really a horrible student. Um, I. Had talent coming into college, and I think <laughs> sort of the the other side of growing up the way I did around the entertainment industry, around a lot of famous people, around um a lot of extremely talented people having uh, a really good reputation in my town and coming kind of being a, a a big fish in a small pond, going into college, I thought, well what could college do for me? Mm-hmm. What does college do for me? and believe me if your listeners are out there and they're in college and they're kind of like, Ugh, take it from me. Look, I made it out. I've had a successful career, but I could have been so much further ahead and so much uh, more prepared had I really said, okay, what can I do with the resources I have in this program to be the best that I can be? And had I done that, I don't think it would have been as much of a challenge at certain points. I think that, um, you know, especially now in a world where you can, like we said, with the laptop, you can just plug in a little keyboard and you can play Mm -hmm. something and sing on a mic that is just the quality that we're talking on. And you can literally put that out to the world and sell it and or do whatever you want with it. And so that would have been much easier for me to do. But I got on this program, and so I, quote, unquote, graduate, you know, after my three years of studying musical theater, vocal performance, and then film and television acting. And there was a show that came along called um, The Lion King. Have you ever heard of it?
0: Yeah. yeah, well, once yeah or twice. It was, yeah, once or twice. it went
1: yeah. right on and then right off Broadway. Um, and so I auditioned for that, and the audition was great. And Jay Binder, I think, was casting, still is casting that. And there was another very famous uh, casting director in New York City who still is, is doing their thing. And I'll never forget that moment when I auditioned for the first time for them. Because... I had this thing where I like I closed my eyes, I put my head down, and I really got into the moment. And I did like the most actory actor thing <laughs> in the world, right? Like short of putting my fist up to my head and like really, like, really getting into it. Like, and I'll never forget, I take this breath, ready to let out the the sounds of choirs of angels, and the casting director does this <clears throat> purposefully. And it was like that moment that you see in the movies where somebody walks into the saloon and it's like, and everyone looks at you. It was that glass breaking moment. And I'll never forget that because she taught me such a good lesson to never, ever, ever do that. (laughs) To just come in and deliver and be authentic. Not that I wasn't being authentic, but I thought like that was the way to like get into it right Right. now. To just come in and deliver and be authentic and... um, Then years later, I would be sitting in my car ready to go to Hollywood for this show called American Idol, which nobody had ever heard of. And I get this phone call from Binder's office saying, hey, I mean, this is like four years later.
2: Oh, it was that Three, four
1: years later, yes. Wow. Lion King was like we, I went, I came up to New York, I did master classes. I did all the things other than, and sign the contract basically. And they're like, we would love it. And so every couple of months, every six months or so, I get this, hey, uh, are you still around? How's it going? Uh, We don't have a place for you yet, but we really want you to do that. And I would audition and Uh, Never quite get it. And it wasn't until I actually booked American Idol that they called me uh, and said, Hey, we want you to be in The Lion King on Broadway. We finally have this great role. And it's a a chorus role. It would have been perfect for me because I'm, you know, 22 at the time. And um, I said, well, there's this show. I'm going out to LA. I might get cut. Can I call you back in a week? So literally Broadway called and I was like,
2: could you hold seven days? Could you just wait? So you turned down your Broadway debut. (laughs) I did. For American Idol. Broadway called and I said no.
1: (laughs) Which, you know, I mean, but I had this instinct, this feeling, and I was doing really well uh, in the, the, the first few rounds of the show. And I literally remember walking down the aisle in the Pasadena Civic Center where we filmed Hollywood Week and where they may still film it now. And I just started to cry. And it was the weirdest thing because, I mean, it's 22 years old, um, first time out to L.A., all these new amazing experiences, um, not a person who cried easily at the time, and yet I just bust out crying because that stage was the stage where, you know, for better or worse, you know, Michael Jackson did the moonwalk for the first time during the Motown mm. 50th. That stage was where so many people that I grew up knowing grew up a, a, a really wanting to emulate and and just loving and being shaped by had, had performed. And so I just followed my gut and I said, you know what? Thank you so very much for this opportunity. I've always wanted to be on Broadway, but there's this, sh- I, I just, I gotta, I gotta follow my my heart on the show. And it ended up working out really well because almost 10 years later, I was in uh, the opening uh, the opening night party for Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, my mm-hmm. very first Broadway show, and I was in the hotel in Times Square in one of the conference rooms. I had sat and waited to audition for American
2: Idol, and
1: I was like the perfect
2: 360 moment. Wow, wow! Well, tell me about the the Idol audition. How did you How did you get out to LA? How did you audition for Idol?
1: Oh no, who's here?
2: Yeah, I mean, you auditioned here. Yeah, and it was just a an, a cattle a cattle call.
1: Literally a cattle call. It was the coldest summer day in New York, just like today. It was like you know we, we've had this heat wave, and then today's just kind of a little like ugh, right. It's cold, and and it was. I was standing in line reading the first Harry Potter, which tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> and, and I was like, ugh, don't even want to be here. Don't want to be doing this. It's freezing cold. But I stood there for like eight hours outside, standing. On the, I
2: mean, you had to get there super early, right? Do you remember what the casting call said? Because nobody knew what Idol was at this time.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I don't remember what it said, but I remember that my mom was upstairs doing something that she hates to do and never does, ironing. And she saw on the TV that there was this show that, I mean, and like literally Fox must have spent like five bucks on promo for this thing because... I went to the website after she told me to go to it, and like links were broken, like things didn't work. And this was like, you know, social media didn't exist. I mean, the web was kind of like what? Yeah. <laughs> like people didn't quite know what it was or how to operate it, and, and or nearly as much as they do today, anyway. And so I don't remember what the heck it said, but I just said, I'll give it a shot. Why not? And so I end up standing, you know, I fill out the forms that sign my life away and I end up standing in line for eight hours. And that was just to get into the chorus line-esque sort of audition where, you know, we get, we wait in a, a huge holding room and then we go downstairs and somebody interviews us. Um, and we're all sitting in the room together. and Literally, it's like this rectangular room with two chairs in the middle of it. And everyone's sitting around you while some producer is interviewing you in the middle. And then you go step in the room, and it's four or five kids across. And you literally step forward, sing a verse and a chorus, and you step back. Oof. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Cattle call. Wow. And then, okay, so that was O two, you said? Yes. O two. Wow. Yeah. Okay, Can so you they go, go to L.A. Yeah. And… As it started to ramp up, obviously you felt you felt something. You felt that it had momentum because you turned down your Broadway debut for it. Hello. Yeah. I mean, like crazy. Right. So at what point was it the when it started to go live? I, I guess, okay, so back up. How long between when they're airing the taped episodes and then the catch up to the live stuff?
1: Yeah, what we did was we taped all the stuff, and then we went back home. And they're like, "If you talk about this, we're going to kill you." And I mean, not really, but like that was the thing. They're like, "You signed away your life. Do not tell anybody about what you've done." And so I would say like a couple months. You know, they really. Yeah, it was. It was. um, They taped it, and then they just started airing all the stuff. Maybe a couple months later, and then um, they uh, revealed the like the top. Thirty or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and what was really interesting about that season was they were still trying to figure everything out. So once they revealed who the top thirty was, they flew us out, and all of us were in this one hotel. And instead of flying us out here and, and, and trying to mess with schedules, they flew us all out. So I was in the last group of ten to go. So they did you know three weeks, ten uh, contestants, a week and whittled that down to you know whatever the top ten. And so I was in the last group to go. So I had like two weeks in L.A., 22, fully put up in a hotel. I think they even gave us per diem, and we're just waltzing around
0: L.A. (laughs) It was the craziest
1: thing because I'd never been to California before. And the first time was with Pasadena. And here I am, this 22-year-old kid with all these other – it's like – it was like the cast party that never ended, right? It felt yeah. like. And we're right near like the Beverly Center, if you've ever been to LA, and they're giving us money. They're giving us this amazing hotel and all these rooms, and we're all together, and like, you know, we're we're going over to CBS television. I mean, it was the most surreal experience. And then you get to be on live television. Wow.
2: What was yeah. that like? Is that is that when you figured out that it, that the show was really going to be something? No, we didn't know. The show did. I mean, I don't know the numbers, but like the show did
1: well because we were like, oh, interesting, what's this? But it really didn't hit me until it was the top 10. We were living up in a house on Mulholland Drive, um, which is a beautiful mansion up there with a huge pool. And it wasn't until after the first live episode, the top 10, that first episode where we got to see it on TV and we saw it back. And it was always so funny because if we thought we sounded good in the studio – like the sound kind of like sucked on TV. If we thought, oh man, I'm, I'm going to get voted off. That sounded so terrible. It ended up sounding good on TV because we would watch it afterwards because it would air East Coast time live right. and then it would be uh, um, uh, taped for the West Coast. And so we always got to check it out. And it wasn't until I saw that and really saw people's reactions on the news and how they framed everything where I was like, oh my God, this is, this is is gonna this is something. And then it just was like, being on a moon rocket from there.
2: Wow. And you made it down, obviously, to the final two. Mm-hmm. Came in second to Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. Are you still close with Kelly? Do you talk to her?
1: Well, I'm close in terms of we were in like completely different universes. But yeah, we're friends. We've been friends for a really long time. And I think the last time I saw her was like at some Disney event, I think. The opening of the American Idol experience there. Wow.
2: Yeah. That, that's crazy. Um, we had we interviewed Lauren Lott on this podcast a while back. Mm-hmm. She was on season 14 of of oh Idol. God. Can you believe? And she, yeah, gosh, and that was even years ago. Yeah. Um, But she was saying that like the the behind-the-scenes stuff, it's just intense, and they have like a counselor on site to deal with stress management. As as they
1: should, because think about it. You're plucking people from obscurity. I was lucky that I had at least, I was the guy, I was like the ombudsman. Like whenever there was any sort of media or like somebody asked, all, all 10 of us are sitting there on the couch, and someone's like, well, what do you think of this? All the heads would turn my way, and I was the guy <laughs> who was tasked with giving the the, uh, the responses to uncomfortable questions because I knew how to kind of get out of things. and And so, yeah, having counselors and stuff like that, of course, because it is so. I mean, I did it before the advent of social media, as we know it. It was just like crappy MSN message boards. Right? I mean, like, <laughs> I'm serious. Like it was like. It was nothing compared to what it is now. And you got to think, okay, not only is it hard enough for artists to just put themselves out there, but you're doing it in a way where people have more access to you. And worse, I think you have more access to, to them and to their ideas and their thoughts and, and their feelings about stuff. And you go on now and it's like, you get on the show and boom, you have 300,000 followers, right? And they're saying all kinds of stuff, good, bad, uh, and indifferent and and everything in between. And so, yes, part of what they do now is they make sure that people are of sound mind and body to Mm -hmm. be able to experience this because it is super intense. You have got to not only quickly learn a song uh, and perform it in front of millions of people, um, but you have also got to deal with the rigors of interviews. you got to deal with the rigors of just filming commercials and doing... I mean, it is a non-stop process. You probably get a few hours of sleep each night.
2: That sounds
1: horrible. And then you got to sing <laughs> and then and then you on, gotta on sing. top of that, right? And like yeah. audition every single week
2: for America. Right. So you come out of this at... You're still 22, right? Yeah, no, 22. Yeah, I turned 23 on tour, yeah. 22, 23. And, and you're basically... You are a millionaire at this point, yeah? Like the money comes in from the touring yeah. and is it actually, I heard someone tell me once that it's actually better not to win because then you don't have to sign to the, the, the idols label. It just depends. Or? No, I don't know about that. Maybe now
1: that might be the case but I think, you know, with my season, I think everything happened the way it was supposed to happen for sure um, but I know that if, and I can't say this for certain but if I were them, um, when you have your first American Idol, you got to make that work. Right When you win, that person has to go to the top. And when mm-hmm. you have someone as talented and as lovely as Kelly Clarkson, that's easy to do, but it's still like you still got to make sure that you're, you prove the model mm-hmm. works, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I mean, for me, I think it was better that I didn't win because I was not prepared for the business aspect, the business side of – uh, the record industry and it is killer. And and Kelly uh, certainly was, without a doubt. She knew how to um, deservedly get her way when she needed it. And she knew how to pick and choose her battles. And um she knew that from a very young age. Me, I was just like, hey, I'm gonna sing and be kind to people and they're gonna take care of me, right? <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, that was that was that would have been a recipe for most likely, literally death for me had I won.
2: Wow. Well, yeah. I guess then it's much better that you that you did absolutely or did not win. I guess yeah, got second place. So after that, though, they continued and and so you had um, had a film with Kelly from Justin to Kelly sure. that was not so well received by critics.
1: Not by the critics, but I'm telling you, people come up to me. Matter of fact, I was just in Times Square, <laughs> nodding your head. Um, people come up to me. I was just in Times Square and like are you the guy from Justin Kelly? (laughs) Really? Like, crazy. Someone came up to me just today when I was in Times Square, like, just taking some photos for, like, social media. And someone someone came up and talked. I mean, that's, you know, one out of 100,000 people. But, like, you can't buy that kind of impact. And even though that that movie went in and out of theaters very quickly – it still has an impact on people. And they're like, yeah, I've got the VHS at home, which kind of makes me want to barf a little. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> better than better than Laserdisc at home, I suppose. But um, yeah, it just was one of those really, again, a really wonderful experience that was not received well um, by critics, but had that impact. And that was really that first season – you, we just had such an impact and you can't buy that. And I'm still able to work and still able to leverage all of that impact um, so many years later, almost 20 years later now.
2: Right. So you, you had that. And then RCA actually signed you. Yeah. They did, yeah, yeah. So RCA signed you and you put out, you put out a, a self-titled album. Mm. Which, I mean, I'm kind of getting at... Um, the, you how, of, how crappy. <laughs> how <laughs> up and down. Yes, exactly. As soon as the, the lights businesses. went off at, at, on American Idol... Um,
1: that was when everything started going downhill for me. <laughs> yeah. Really, I mean, the film tanked, my album tanked, um, there was bad press I had gotten at the time, and there were so many things that just went completely wrong after things going so wonderfully right. And unlike today, I it's like, the beautiful thing about social media is that we can control our own narrative. And it allows us to put out the pictures the stories the the whatever that how it allows us to define ourselves mm-hmm. whereas then no you know that it was it was really challenging and when you have a couple of commercial you know quote unquote failures that really begins to define you in the eyes of the media and then you you uh, put that up against the you know, skyrocketing success of what Kelly had. And it just was like, oh, man. It got to the point where I was just like, I just want to to sing and I'm nice to people. And why is this happening? You know, poor me victimizing sort of thing. And I just said, okay, I had enough of that. And I literally just stopped. And I'll never forget the day when I was in Beverly Hills in a mansion, which I did not own. I was staying at a friend's house. Um, and I was watching SNL and Tina Fey back when she was on uh, the the weekend update. Mm -hmm. Um, All of a sudden, my face comes up next to her head and whatever that, it's on a deco, whatever that picture is that comes up next to the newscasters. And she said, "Uh, news today, Justin Guarini was dropped from his label at RCA. And that was the way I found out. No kidding. That I was dropped from my record label. Wow! Crazy, right? I mean, and so it just goes to show you that I had money, I had fame, I had all the trappings of wealth. I was in this beautiful compound in Bel Air, and yet I wasn't happy. I was obviously not a, in communication with my record label. They didn't uh, really bother to tell me that they dropped me, uh, and I I felt like a failure. And I was just at this crossroads in my life where I was like, okay, you know what, I need to stop this. And so the record label dropped me. And because of the way the contracts worked, the management company, um, it, the contract terminated with them. They wanted to continue on with me, but I was like, F this, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And I literally left the country for a week. I went to New Zealand by myself and jumped out of an airplane and bungee jumped and all this <laughs> and so just so i could feel alive. Yeah. And it's so crazy because we're such a fame obsessed culture. And yet i had everything everyone thinks they want and it made me feel like nothing.
2: I felt nothing. Well cuz does is it because everyone kind of wants a piece of that so you don't know like i feel like if i was in that position i wouldn't know who to trust. Sure.
1: Yeah, i mean at least of all yourself. Good. Really? That's the challenging thing. It's that it's that feeling when you can't even trust yourself that is the worst side of fame. And I was in a place where it's just like everything and anything that comes out of my mouth seems to be the wrong thing. You know, and everything that I try and do ends up blowing up in my face. And so I just want to do nothing. I don't want to be famous anymore. I don't want to be in LA anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to be in this country anymore. I just want to be nobody for once. And that was a year later, you know, I mean, maybe even less than a year after the lights went down. And I mean, I'd went on a national tour and I'd done a film and done all this other stuff and, you know, been on Oprah and all these, all the things that you want, you think you want. And I had to learn the hard way that that is not what, brings success that is not what brings you um satisfaction fulfillment business and fulfillment yeah
2: yeah Uh, oh man that yeah you hear that a lot and i i yeah we see stories and now like you were saying now with the advent of social media that uh i i love when people that um you look up to your heroes talk about struggle and and are just transparent and honest about their own mental health issues or or Whatnot. Well, that's it.
1: I mean, that's amazing. I come from the generation of entertainers who, you know, really heralded enigma and not wanting to uh, be um, uh, accessible to the fans, mm-hmm. right? Because then the fans be like, oh, I wonder what they're like. And oh, oh, those things like stars, are just like us. Like, you know, pushing the cart, you know, in the, <laughs> like in the, in the mall or wherever they are, yeah. like grocery shopping. It's like, oh my goodness, they are just like us. Whereas now it's the opposite. You know, look at Busy Phillips, right? I mean, Busy Phillips had this really great career when she was young and then like was just in the wasteland of like not working for a long time. And then she gets on Instagram, she gets on social media, and she just... Lives her life in front of everyone—good, bad, indifferent, good day, crying, all kinds of things—and she led us into her life, and it was so impactful that they gave her a TV show. I just saw she's in Olay ads now and everything, like skincare <laughs> ads, and like it's—it's it's just amazing how, like you said, like we now, myself included, I feel so much more willing to invest my time, my money, my everything in someone who is real and who's vulnerable mm-hmm. as opposed to that untouchable star.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I admire that. I actually, one of the things that, um, I love, uh, Caitlin Cannon from the prom we had on this podcast mm-hmm, too. And she, mm-hmm. um, we talked about a, a video she posted of herself crying into into her <laughs> cell phone when she found out she got the Tony nomination. Yeah. And she's like, "Yeah, I use Instagram as like to document my own life, so I don't forget about my my life yes, later." Absolutely, uh, my
1: kids, I do that the same thing. And I It's like, you know, they're so lucky because like their entire lives. Are going to be documented. Just like, your you phone, know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you yeah. know, like I have. Fortunately, my parents took a lot of video, but like for most people my age and above, it's just like you got you got some some of those like red toned photos. You, <laughs> know I mean? you know what I mean? Like right, and like yeah. you got if you're lucky, right, and then maybe a little bit of that shoulder mounted uh, VHS tape mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. but now it's just like you know you document everything. And I think it's such that's
2: brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. and it's so easy. Yeah. Because yeah, you carry it in your pocket. Anyway, mm-hmm. so podcasting. Yeah. I wanna I wanna get onto that. So so your podcast, Audition Secrets Podcast, tell me about that and why did why did you start it? Why, why come out of all of this sort of transformation, like you know, going from your caterpillar to your butterfly now? You're, yeah. you're in butterfly stage. Yeah. Why not go back to Broadway? Why do what you're doing?
1: You know what? i
2: I will go back to Broadway.
1: Yeah. It wasn't like I stopped. I took the opportunity that Lil Sweet has literally afforded me. Oh man,
2: Lil Sweet, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll We'll get get
1: there, there, right? And so, you know, being in a national campaign like that and doing it for five years now has really given me the chance to say, okay, you know, it's like even, I don't care what level of success you're at, unless you're like in the stratosphere, it's a feast and famine business, Mm -hmm. right? And so I've been in six Broadway shows. But it's still like, okay, when's the next show? When's the next paycheck? When's that next And so when you are fortunate enough to get something like a national commercial campaign on television, it just gave me a little bit of breathing room. So I said, okay, how can I do something and be a part of something that's a little bit more legacy-oriented, right? Because I just... Turned 40, not all that long ago. And while I still have plenty of time left in my career, I'm just looking, uh, looking at that <laughs> hill coming up, right? And you know wondering when I'm going to crest that. And so two things. That gave me uh, the, the ability to step back and say, okay, I want to do work that I want to do as opposed to sometimes the work that we have to do or mm-hmm. feel like we have to do. And then on the other hand, I had this audition For a really huge Broadway show where I had to learn 20 songs and very complicated music. And I went in over a period of about three months and auditioned for, I love them so very much, great group of people. And they basically made me do everything other than put on a tutu and jump through a flaming hoop. I Mm -hmm. mean, they put me through my paces. I love this show. I will always love this show. I will always love the people who are involved with this show. And I would still want to do this show. And yet, through that period, I got... You know, go this way. And then do that. And and like sometimes I would go in one audition and they would tell me to do the exact opposite that they did, which happens, Mm -hmm. right? Just to see, put you through your paces. You never know why they make the choices that they do on the other side of the table, but you go with it. We're actors. It's our job to deliver what is requested of us. And so at the end of this three, three and a half month period, uh, I wait to hear back. And I don't hear anything. More weeks go by. And I'm bugging my agent who bugs the casting director who bugs the creative team. And eventually, from upon high, the answer is no. Now look, rejection is just part of our business, right? That's mm-hmm. what we face as mm-hmm. actors all the time. But the fact that they made me come in over a period of months, asked me to do all this stuff, learn all these songs which i i said hey look i'll i'll learn all these songs i don't mind so it's not like it was like i'm a victim or anything and yet at the end of all of that didn't give me something to take away that i could be better that i could learn from it just was a oh no made me feel so disrespected and so just kind of like just another you know, uh, herd, just another cow in the herd, right? And uh, the reason why they call it a cattle call. And so I said, I stepped back and I was like, do I even want to be doing this anymore? Like what the, that was so wrong and so rude. And how, like, I don't ever want to feel this way again. And as I started asking myself those questions, I asked better questions. And another one was, well, wait, if I, at my level, and I'm certainly not the top of the charts, But like if my level, I can experience that kind of disrespect uh, of my time and my artistry. Imagine what people who are going to those cattle calls sometimes two, three times a day Mm -hmm. are experiencing. And it's like, I know I have nerves before I go into auditions. I have all these things that happen to me. How can I not only help myself and be better and not feel so gypped after an experience like I experienced with the show— But how can I also help other people? And from that, other performers, and how can I give back to my community? And from that came Audition Secrets, the book. And so I started talking to all my shiny friends, the famous people that I had worked with and the theater legends and casting directors and coaches and my mentors and other hardworking actors. And I started talking to them about how they auditioned, the things that they went through, how they overcame... Um, all kinds of scenarios, and I started mixing that with my own experience. And out of that came the book, Audition Secrets. And out of that came the podcast. And out of that came this uh, coaching program and mentoring program that I'm going to be releasing in, in a few weeks. And so many wonderful responses I've gotten to that. And so much, like I really love teaching. Like, I really, really, really love teaching. I love performing. Nothing will ever beat performing on the stage, and I'm continuing to do that. I love doing that. But I love being able to see that light bulb go on over a student's heaven. Like, oh, I get it. And to save them from the pitfalls that I fell into and that so many actors fall into on a daily basis because we are treated like just another number. We are treated like cattle at various levels uh, of success. And if there's anything that I can do to help save someone from feeling that way or from casting themselves as that way in the audition room, um, then I- I'm, I'm going to do that.
2: I hear stories all the time about people who go in for roles they feel they are so wrong for, mm-hmm. and they end up getting this great career shift out of it. Yeah. I yeah. got one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So Lil Sweet uh, is one of those. Yeah. Tell me about Lil Sweet. Doc, yeah. Diet Dr. Pepper, yeah. you're. You, how did this happen? <laughs> exactly. How
1: did this happen? That's it. I was just coming off of a nine month stint on Broadway in Wicked as Fiero. And that's a challenging show, uh, really much more dance heavy than any other show that I've been in. And while Fierro doesn't work nearly as hard as the ladies work, let me give it up for for the witches because, oh my goodness, not only do they have to sing all these crazy numbers, but they have to do it with 40-pound dresses on, literally 40-pound dresses. And so it was challenging. I was in a lot of pain because it, it just like when you swing out on the rope, when you're dancing on the rake, when you're doing all this stuff, and like I just was worn out. And so uh, I get this call that says, hey, there's this commercial thing. You should go in for it. And I was like, look, hey, guys, uh, to my team. I was like, hey, uh, I'm just going to relax. I'm going to take some time off. I don't want to go do it. And they continue to badger me. Like, you should, just go in for it. I was like, no, I don't want to go in for it. please, just go in for it. Do it for me. I was like, fine, I'll do it. Fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> I'll go in. And so I come to New York. And I'm in the casting office and the description, the breakdown had all these eighties rock star names in it. And this really funny, quirky description. And I was like, this has nothing, this has nothing to do with me or anything that I can do (laughs) or who I am or anything I've ever done before in my life, let alone uh, in front of anyone of merit. And So I go into the room, and the greatest thing that I think I could have ever done was not care. Now, I want to deliver a good performance, not care like walk in and be an a-hole, but like not care in the sense of like, I don't care whether I get this or not. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go in. I'm going to have some fun, and uh, I'm going to be able to satiate my agent's thirst and lust for me wanting to be in this damn audition, Mm -hmm. right? And so I go in, and... It's just a casting assistant and a camera and a couple of LCD screens turned vertically so I can read the copy. And in parentheses, it says, Lil Sweet slides in on his knees. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> all right. Hey, am I out of frame? Am I out of frame? And I asked him, am I out of frame? Yeah, yeah you're out of frame. And then I literally slide in, slid in on my knees and I was like, having a good time. I, you know, all the things that you hear sung in the commercial, I was making that up. I was making it because I didn't care. I was it, i was doing things that I do to entertain my children and my wife when she's mad at me <laughs> in the living room of my own home. And it was one of those things where literally they called me that night and they're like, please come in tomorrow. And I did it for all the, the, the creatives. And they called me that night and said, can you get on a plane tomorrow and go to LA? And I said, okay. Wow. And that was it. And then here we are five years later and it's been it has been one of the greatest jobs I've ever had in my life. It,
2: I, was, I was binging them on, <laughs> on YouTube last night. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's so, they're so funny. It's all of you are just all hitting on the ladies. And yeah, life. and the thing is, is that I don't
1: really have to act because anybody who knows me knows that, like, I'm really animated. You can't tell. And... uh And I just love to be a goofball. And it's just like, I just get to step into Lil Sweet. And when they put the rug on my head and uh, I grow out a beard, which it literally takes me, like, you look like you could grow a beard, like... It, it, you could just, half a just day. sneeze in yeah. half a day and all of a sudden it'll come out again. Uh, but like for me, it takes me like three, four weeks to like get, I'm not even kidding, to get like any sort of like but not so that's patchy, a real beard. They disgusting. They don't, no, it's a real thing. But like literally they have to tell me at least a month in advance before we start shooting. It's like, okay, I grow <laughs> my beard. And then it goes through that like horrible patchy sort of like. Vagrant
2: phase. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, you have a lot of humanitarian work. Sure. So I want to touch on uh, real quick, because we're running short on so time here. Me but, look but yeah, so humanitarian, like you're an advocate for musical educational funding. Yeah. You've done lobbying. Like, tell yeah. me about that. I, Why I do you went get to into Capitol
1: that? Hill. I went to Capitol <laughs> Hill. How do you get into that? How does one get into lobbying? How does one decide? There's yes. a few yeah, New York Times articles about that. But like... um. Basically, what I did was I worked with um, this wonderful uh, group of folks in L.A. who were really fighting to keep music in our schools. And because music was such a big part of my life in school and completely shaped my the whole rest of my life, my career and everything, it's so important to fight for musical theater programs, to fight for music programs in our schools because they're being cut. And it's like... uh, not just from a self-expression standpoint, but from mathematics, from English, from social studies, from just being able to work, play well with others. You know, There's such important facets of a child's life. And even if you don't go into theater, just being a part of that can have a huge and lasting impact, if n- nothing else for an appreciation of theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I went to Capitol Hill and I sat down with uh, our lawmakers and I was like, Please. Keep music and uh, arts funding going in our school because my life would be uh, completely different had that not been
2: there for me. Yeah, I, I love that. So, we have just soft launched Broadway Podcast Network. BroadwayPodcastNetwork.com, for those of you who want to listen, or BPN.FM as short right now. The Theater Podcast is uh, a proud partner, um, a proud member of BPN. And now, Audition Secrets. Yes. Is also part of BBN. I'm so
1: excited to be a part of the family. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it just kind of, I was looking for exactly what the Broadway Podcast Network is, which is not only a place to find amazing theater. Uh, podcasts, because that was a big challenge for me. When I was like, hmm, I want to do a podcast as one does, right? Uh, I was like, let me listen to some other theater podcasts. And like, I had to search around everywhere and some, I couldn't, it was so hard to find. But now with the Broadway podcast network you can get it all in one place and i'm so excited to be a part of the family
2: that's wonderful and you already had a couple episodes out like with patty lapone and laura yeah, osmus
1: you've heard of them uh, right yeah not like, bad small potatoes
2: gosh i i listened i listened to the one with patty already it's yeah. such good information and and Thanks. people who want broadway just binge this stuff i yeah. love it i love, love it. i love the broadway tribe it's yeah, so good
1: it's great and there's so many great i mean like what you know, Broad Wasted and The Ensemblist and Elia Vine and, like, so many really great shows. And I'm just really, really, really glad to be a part of it and that um, at the end of the day, it's about service for me, right? I want to make sure that I get this information out to people so that when they get the material in their inbox, they get their audition, they know exactly how to set themselves up for success throughout the entire process, from the moment you get
2: it to the moment you leave the audition room. Yeah, that is... Beautiful. Okay, so, um, welcome to the family. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> All right, so we've got the three standard closing questions that Ooh, we always use to yes. end every episode on the there theater go. podcast here. Very simply, number one, what motivates you?
1: Oh, man. Passion was the first word that came to my mind, but that just sounds so corny. But I'll go with it. I mean, it really is passion. Being passionate about what it is that I do, like having a passion for... You know, when we talk about in this context, theater, and it excites me, and I have a passion for live performance, and um, that's it. Passion, passion, passion. And when it comes to auditions, when you have that passion for the work, it shows when you step into the room.
2: Yep. Yep. Okay, so second question. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people now starting out down a similar path?
1: Know your story. I mean, it's like we always hear that, you know, know thyself, and that really, truly is is timeless advice. But where I came from, you know, whether you want to start with the boys' choir or from American Idol or from Broadway or wherever, knowing your story is so important. Being able to walk into a casting room and have... An idea of who you are and what it is that you have to deliver. You know, with, uh, for example, like uh, people I was talking to them um, uh, today uh, during the auditions for American Idol. And I was like, if I was a record label executive and I handed you a contract and I said, you can make any record you want. You can wear any clothes you want. Uh, who do you want to be singing to? You know, what's your demographic and all those stuff. I think you should have those answers ready to go. Before now, they'll change, right? They'll change as you mm-hmm. change as an artist. But knowing those things, walking into a, a room, um, auditioning for musical theater, even just having an idea of who you are, being able to own your own power and own your own story is so vitally important because we tend to when we don't, um, uh, when we don't, when we own our story, when we know about ourselves, instead of playing a character. We allow the character to play through us mm-hmm. more. And I, I mean, I could go talk on forever about that. I won't do that right now. But it is a, a huge shift when you walk into a room and you own your own power. And part of that is knowing and owning your own story.
2: Okay. And last question. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, oh, but you can see it as many times as you want, oh, what would you see?
1: Good. If I could only see one show? Oh, man. The Prom. The prom. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which I want to go see, by the way. I've got some great friends in that show. Um, if I could see one show over and over again as many times, and oh my gosh, I'm like, oh, I'm getting a, like, a little weepy just thinking about seeing it over and over again, would be my very favorite show of all time. The one that after I saw it, I... Was in elementary school, I'll never forget, Bonnie Bray Elementary in Virginia. And I felt like when I saw that, I could could fly. I went outside and I did my version of the choreography, which felt amazing, but probably looked like hell. And that's West Side Story. If I could see West Side Story over and over again, I could. And if I could play any role in West Side Story, it would be Bernardo believe it or not. Mm. I don't know if I am qualified as a dancer enough to be able to do that. I'm one of those actors that moves, right? But um, I love, love that show. And it is like, it literally, um, even just talking about it, like, makes me get a little choked up because it is like, it is my musical theater beating heart. I wore
2: out the VHS of West Side Story.
1: It it is. There's nothing like it in the world.
2: Singing in the Rain, Music Man, and West Side Story were my three (laughs) when I was a little a little boy. Yeah. <laughs> before right after dad, before you know, before CDs came out. Yeah. Um, all dad. right. So we can yeah. <laughs> uh, we can find you online on Twitter and Instagram, just Justin Guarini. No bell in there, Justin nope. Guarini on nope. uh, JustinGuarini.com. Of course, you can find the podcast there, or also head over to BroadwayPodcastNetwork.com to find the podcast there. To find more of this, you can go to the theaterpodcast.com. You can find me online theater underscore Instagram and Twitter on Facebook slash official theater podcast. Of course, share with your friends. Leave a rating. They all help. This is produced by Jillian Hockman. Edited by Matthew Hendershot. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music you're hearing right now. And Justin, oh my God, this was so much fun. Awesome. Thank you for coming time. on the podcast. Thank you so very much. Take
0: a deep breath, make the world a little colorful.